Good evening. Let us open again to Romans in chapter 11. That's where we were this morning. And where we'll be this evening. Uh, Our two messages concern the remnant, the um, Bible doctrine of the remnant, and which is a subject so precious for us ever and, and all the more these days. Uh, this morning we concentrated on the origin of the remnant. How does it come about that there has always been a remnant on this earth? And we saw that that's to be attributed wholly to the mercy of God, who makes sure there is always a people on this earth that will testify of Him and sing His praises. And then we also considered the purpose. Why does God leave a remnant? What's the purpose of the remnant? And, and uh, we saw it especially in Genesis, considering the first chapters of Genesis, and then uh, especially Lamech, uh, Noah's father, and, and all that's entailed in that prophecy he spoke. And so we saw the remnant as a vehicle through which God maintains a testimony of His truth uh, on this earth uh, because this truth is orally or um, by means of writing passed on from generation to generation uh, by people that will hear God's truth, will believe God's truth, will preserve God's truth and will then pass it on for others to embrace, to, to hear, for others to believe, others to preserve, others to pass on, and so forth throughout uh, the um, centuries and millenniums of, of, of history. Uh, we saw that the maintaining of that truth uh, is especially precious when it comes to the messianic promise of Christ. Uh, the gospel has always been central to scripture, Old Testament or New Testament. Um, and so we saw how Noah was really a type of, the, of Christ who would give us consolation and peace and rest. And, uh, and uh, so um, this, this evening together we will uh, consider the other two points I wanted to make. One was the trials of the remnant and then the remedies uh, to those trials. And so we are back in Romans chapter 11. And, uh, you know, before I, um, I do that, um, let me just point out one thing that we'll then pick up later on in the message, that the promise of the Messiah uh, changed the whole view of history in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, the Greeks had a cyclical view of history, of the courses and recourses of history. And uh, now the Bible does affirm that there's a certain uh, cyclical nature to history. Things repeat themselves. But also the Bible gives a direction to history and it 
gave a direction to history in the very moment that with the whole, uh, with everything that happened with uh, Adam's sin, the message of grace was introduced, speaking of the one that was to come one day to set humanity free. See, that promise established a point in time to look forward to. And that hope for the future, only those who believe in Jesus have. Nobody else does. Even this very day, the millions of people that will not acknowledge God's work in Christ have no hope for the future. Even if they're atheists and believe there is no God, the, the brighter picture that they can look forward to is complete annihilation. When everything ends in nothingness, then nothing can have any meaning. And so we know that uh, annihilation will not be, because nothing will erase man's consciousness, the, the existence of the soul, of the spirit. Uh, and yet, only those who have the hope of Christ can always have something forward to look towards. Uh, this is not our home. This is not our destiny. Dust will not be our destiny. Nothingness will not be our destiny. There are greater things to come. And, and this is as precious as for the elderly as it is for the younger generation. Um, so, We'll come back to this because this has a lot to do with the hope of the remnant. <laughs> uh, things can look very bleak for the remnant at times. Uh, in fact, uh, let us go through here what Paul says. Um, verse 1, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Uh, or do you not know what the scriptures say of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and tore down your altars, and I am alone left. And they seek my life. So, when we consider the trials and the sufferings and the temptations of the remnant, uh, here's the place to come to, at least one of the places to come to in Scripture. Here we have a prophet that has uh, served the Lord, facing many battles, Elijah, many temptations, many struggles, uh, who is now downcast and uh, very discouraged. Why? look at verse 3 again Lord they have killed your prophets and tore down your altars and I'm alone and left and they seek my life you see here we find a, uh, that sentiment of defeat uh, that seems to have overtaken the uh, you know, prophet Elijah uh, that sense of the you know, demise of God's work, the failing, the apparent failing of God's design, of God's work on the earth. 
And uh, so I would say that's the first temptation, or the first trial. We, we saw this morning how wonderful it is to be part of the remnant. <laughs> but with that privilege, and we are privileged, <laughs> we are privileged in the grace of God, there are also trials and tribulations. So, you never have privileges without responsibilities, do you? <laughs> Shouldn't be. So, here too we find this balance in Scripture. Wonderful it is to be a part of that remnant, and yet there's a price to pay. And here is one of the greatest struggles of being part of this tiny minority of true Christians throughout history. You feel that sometimes uh, it seems like God's work is failing, is coming to nothing, is being destroyed. And notice that Elijah is not at this at the very outset of his um, a cry, concern about himself. It, your prophets they have killed, your altars that they have destroyed. He's very concerned in his jealousy for the glory of God, for God's work, who's being destroyed. And that's what he's crying about. So, and God's, God knows how this, uh, you know, spirit of discouragement can overtake those who really love God and really love the work of God. Uh, What's the answer of Paul? He said, but, that's an important word, but, that's all true, but, <laughs> what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, compare the two words. I alone am left. Was that real? Was that true? <laughs> uh, no, it wasn't. Within Israel, there were other 7,000 men who had not bowed their knees to Baal. Uh, perhaps he was just speaking of the men. There might have been many other women as well. Perhaps many children who had not done that. But God here just speaks of the men. Uh, and the mark of true believers is they do not bow down to the idols of the world. Uh, which is not easy to do. <laughs> it's not easy to do because there's such a pressure to compromise. Uh, but one of the marks of true believers, even though they may falter and fall, is that overall they will not serve the idols. They will serve the living God through the thick and thin of persecution. And so, um, but again, the the comparison between I alone am left, I alone, God says, no, you're not alone. You can't see the remnant at times. <laughs> you know, especially when we speak of God's universal church, <laughs> who no one knows where it is, how many there are. They are spread everywhere. As Paul says, God alone knows his own. And so we cannot tell, but we know there is a larger crowd of people whose heart has been conquered by the truth and the grace of God who will die uh, um, 
and will not serve the idols of this world. And uh, so again, the, the truth of the remnant becomes precious for us in times of discouragement. We tend to, we tend to do this, don't we? We tend to think that what our eyes are able to see establishes what's real all everywhere else in the world. You know, if I'm alone, then there mean there's nobody else in this world who's a Christian. <laughs> we are so egocentric in our worldview that lose sight of the fact that our vision is quite small. Our horizon is very small. Only God knows. Only God can see. And so he says to all of us, even this, this evening, all of us Elijahs, <laughs> uh, listen, I know the way, how you feel sometimes. Perhaps you think what you have worked is, is, is gone, uh, is being destroyed, and, but uh, I know what's happening. I will preserve my people on this earth. You may not see them, you may not know about them, but they are there. I will make sure. I have made sure. I will continue to make sure that our remnant will be forever on this earth. So that's a tremendous comfort for us. Um, and we must reprove ourselves for our egocentric vision, and our downcast spirits at times, as if the measure of the extent of God's work can be measured by our eyesight. No, no. It's much greater. Uh, encompasses all space and all time. So He promises and so it will be. Um, the second temptation, of course, uh, it's, again, let us go back to the verse 3. Lord, they have killed your prophets have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. So, this is speaking of violence. This is speaking of persecution. And now, that, that can be another temptation. I know we have not had much persecution in, in our Western world, uh, to some extent. Um, but the way things are looking, you know, may come very quickly upon us. And if so, God you know, chooses, so it will be. Um, now we may ask a question, first of all, especially when we consider the whole appearance of God's failing work <laughs> and our being exposed to dangers and all of that. Uh, why does allow for His altars to be torn down and his prophets to be killed. Um, and I think one of the best answers is, is found in Romans, in chapter 1. And when Paul, after speaking of how men have uh, denied God, rejected God, he says, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. And then again, 28, Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. When we see that God is somehow, 
it seems to be absent from our society because he doesn't make his voice be heard like a thunder because his gospel is not recognized because his very sacrifice for us is not acknowledged but is despised by wicked men why is that happening? well because God has withdrawn from our society and is bringing judgment and part of the judgment is the withdrawn from his own work and so you see churches being sometimes persecuted and Christians thinning out <laughs> become fewer and fewer God is withdrawing so when his presence can hardly be felt in our society it does mean that we are under judgment and which explains why at times he may really let his altars be torn down and his prophets be killed wasn't that the case with Israel wasn't the judgment of God on Israel even as he let his prophets being killed um, now <laughs> it is a mystery as to why this minority <laughs> will continue to believe where does the fire come from <laughs> that there will always be on this earth men and women who will be ready to die for the truth of the gospel <laughs> it comes from God <laughs> that's how he maintains his remnant he will always give that uh, utter sense of attachment to the gospel on the basis of which his people will be willing to die for his sake and so, though they die, they will be faithful in Christ as God even brings His judgment upon the world from which He is withdrawing to make the world taste the consequences of His wickedness. And so, um, but again, persecution, tearing down, killing, massacres, Oh, it has happened so many times in history. I'm from Italy, you know, and there's been much persecution in, in, in my country through the ages. Um, but, again, the remnant represents an answer to this, to this persecution. And I would say um, that we can go to the Gospel of Matthew we could remain in Romans, but we can go through the gospel to the Gospel of Matthew as well. First of all, persecution is important for those who belong to the remnant because it testifies to the fact that they do belong <laughs> to the remnant. <laughs> in Matthew, in chapter 5, you, you know the verses. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, blessed are you when they will revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Persecution is painful. Um, but it is a sign. It is a mark of belonging to the remnant. <laughs> that's, how you, that's one of the things that 
most evidently testify that you're not of this world. When you are hated by the world, when you are persecuted by the world, because Christ has chosen you, John chapter 15. You, you are not of this world, for I have chosen you out of this world. That is why the world hates you. John chapter 15. So, in some way, this is why we find this paradox. We rejoice in the face of persecution. Why is that? Because that very persecution is a mark that you hate me. Which means that He loves me. (laughs) That I don't belong to you, but I belong to Him. That's how it works. This is the, the... the paradox of the Christian faith, that is what has given martyrs the, the strength to die, even as they were burnt alive, and many were throughout history. And then, of course, in Matthew 10, the Lord goes back to this very theme. He speaks much of persecution, even as He's sending His disciples out to preach. Behold, the kingdom of God is near. That's what they were to repeat. Did not understand much of that, <laughs> but they were to repeat it. <laughs> but he warns them, verse 16, Behold, I send you a sheep in the midst of wolves. Imagine that. Our shepherd sends his sheep in the midst of wolves. That seems to be like a paradox, doesn't it? A good shepherd wouldn't do that, would he? But he does, and he's the good shepherd. Therefore be wise as, as serpents and harmless as doves. Oh, how difficult that is to be. In the first persecution, to be harmless as doves, and yet wise and careful as serpents, because we know the evil of men. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. In fact, he continues to speak in these terms, and look, Look at verse 22. And you will be hated by all, all people, for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. So here we are. He speaks of this persecution to this small band of believers that had trusted in him. Uh, But then what is the answer? Well, of course, we know the wonderful passages here. Verse 28 do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And here the contrast is between the, the worthlessness that we, we have as believers in the eyes of the world, we are worthless. We are rejects. We are trash. We count nothing. Our voice is not heard. Our opinions are not counted. But we have value in the eyes of God. I know that all Cal- Calvinists don't like to speak of the value of, the, of a man sometimes. <laughs> but it's true. It is biblical doctrine. We... We are, we are of much value in His eyes because that value comes from Him as He redeemed our life and He made it something that has true meaning. Our life is meaningful. Is meaningful. 
And so he assures us of that, then nothing can overtake us in terms of a persecution and aggression and violence and abuse that is not in, in the will of God to be. And we must learn to know that He cares for us, uh, that He has our best interest in His heart, in His mind, in His plan, in His will, in His power. Uh, and so, again, the truth of the remnant, persecution testifies that I belong to Him. I belong to the remnant. What an answer. Uh, I am loved and valued by my Heavenly Father. Um, these are all things in which you may go back to meditate on your own, obviously, but let us go back to Romans in chapter 11, because there is a, another point to consider. Um, Verse 3, Lord, they have killed your prophets, torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. So let us consider now that word alone. <laughs> alone. Uh, one of the prices to pay, if you're part of the remnant, sometimes is that you are marginalized, you are excluded. You are not considered. You are not visited. No one calls you on the phone. No one cares for you. No one comes to visit you. No one even knows if you're at the hospital sometimes. And uh, you are alone. Um, we have just started working on the biography of uh, Griffith John, missionary to China. And uh, he lost his wife and daughter when he was there. And if you read his letters, uh, he experienced loneliness. <laughs> Much loneliness. Sometimes to almost an utter depression. William Carey experienced the same thing. You know, he had a difficult marriage and his wife didn't understand him. And she had some, some issues, perhaps some mental issues, really. But... There's a point in his diary I was just reading a few weeks ago. He said, Oh, I wish I, I had one friend to whom I could open up my heart. Um, so, loneliness will be part. I mean, I'm talking about human social loneliness will be part of the Christian walk if we are part of the remnant. Um, How do you counter loneliness? What is the answer? Um, uh, again, uh, the remnant. The remnant is the answer. How does that work? Well, there are 7,000 who have not bowed down their knees. What does that mean? Well, let us go back to the Gospel of Mark this time to opened up this point of how the remnant is one of God's most important answer to our human social loneliness. Um, I'm speaking about um, 
Chapter 10 of Mark. I'm referring to the episode here of the rich young ruler, verses 17 on down. And you know what happened? He, uh, he was confronted by the gospel. He was told he needed to repent of his greed and follow Christ. He would not do that because he had great riches. And so, at some point, Peter says, uh, in verse 28, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, As surely I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life this is such a very important text because Peter says as many could say even at that time I have lost a lot to follow you. <laughs> I have lost friends. I have lost I have lost relatives. My son will I've lost the affection of my son or the affection of my father or my mother or my sister or my brother. Uh, and so uh, that's one of the worst kind of, of losses that you can have in terms of human affection. Uh, how do you counter that from a human standpoint? from a human standpoint. Well, the Lord says that we need to look for a larger family. If you have lost a couple of brothers because you become a Christian, I'll give you a hundred. You need to look for them, but you have them. You have many brothers. You have so many sisters. You have many fathers. You have many mothers. Uh, what does what does that mean? Well, we need... It means that we need to have greater appreciation for the value of the church as a family. Uh, this is one aspect I'm afraid is really lost sight of. And, and I'm not talking about anything jolly, you know, the jolly family. I'm talking about a real sense of brotherhood and sisterhood and of family. Which means that... Uh, any young, young person that will come to this assembly need to look at all the other men who are older than he is as fathers. And, and to the older women as mothers. That's how the Lord would have us to look at each other. If we are part of the same family, <laughs> and we are, we are. And all believers as brothers and sisters and uh, those who are older need to look at their at young, younger believers as sons and daughters. You may not have the opportunity to influence your own blood son or daughter, but you have so many other spiritual sons and daughters that you can love, you can help, that you can encourage. Um, so this is very important. I have noticed through the years, I've been surprised at times, 
to discover how little friendship really there is in churches. I mean, we can attend the same assembly sometimes for decades and find out in time that a true friendship was never built, was never established. Um, it is not enough to attend services, whether on Sunday or on Wednesday or any other day of the week. There must be something deeper that binds us together and that must be shown by that real sense of family, that spiritual attachment uh, that must be shown day to day by phone calls, by visits, by hospitality, by sharing, by considering, by praying, by helping, so that the family really feels like they are a spiritual family and they have much value in, in one another's eyes. Um, you know, the Lord has lived that struggle, human struggle. If you go back to Mark chapter 3, uh, you remember uh, you know it seems like this Jesus was causing all sorts of racket you know and confusion and what happened in verse 20 and the multitude came together again so they could not so much as to eat bread and when his own people that means his own family heard about this they went out to lay hold of him for they said, he is out of his mind. This is what his natural family thought of Christ. He was out of his mind. He had lost his mind. So they went to get him. And look at what happens in verse 31. Then his brothers and his mother came. And standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him. And they said to him, look. Your mother and your brothers are outside see seeking you. But, adversative, but he answered them saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? He then looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister. And mother. That's exactly what we're talking about. The value of the spiritual family far exceeds the value of, of a natural family. Sometimes natural families can be so broken up. Just hating each other. Especially when it comes time for that inheritance to be divided. Oh, my father's family. They just about kill themselves. Uh, they're completely split apart this very day the last of my aunt died a few days ago and didn't even tell nobody of the funeral uh, so you can really discover can you not even the affection of a son or of a daughter or a parent can just disappear like that and you feel so betrayed <laughs> because you have such a bosom love <laughs> for him or for her and you can't believe that he's treating you this way, or she's treating you this way. And you really discover by experience that blood relations can be very disappointing. Much more important are spiritual relations. There is a bond, there is a depth, there is an understanding, 
there is a harmony of thought, of intent, of purpose, of spirit that you can never have with those of your own if they do not know the Lord. And so, and so the Lord himself treasured his own spiritual family even as he faced his natural family attacking him publicly. So they disowned him you know, publicly and he disowned them publicly. This was the crisis in Jesus' family. From this point on, that would not have anything to do with him and would really be against him, even as we can see in, in Mark chapter 6. But there is a wonderful example. There are many examples, but uh, let us see, for example, in Romans chapter 16, there's just uh, many of these scriptures could be found in the Bible. But, you know, uh, Paul, of course, knew much much persecution. And, uh, and we know that he also experienced loneliness in his life. He, 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 he had no one to be beside him when he was tried in Rome and condemned to death. But look at uh, how many friends he has. For example, in Romans 15, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church of uh, Chancrea, that you may receive her in the Lord in a matter worthy of the saints and a sister in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. Greet Priscilla and Aquila my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who is the firstfruits of Achaia in Christ. Greet Mary, who labored much for us. And so forth, he continues to mention all of these names. And these are all people that he knew. And then look at uh, 13. For example, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. And, you know, Rufus was not Paul's brother, <laughs> blood brother. He was a Christian. But Rufus' mother was a Christian. And so, because she was so, Paul felt that she was his own mother. Apparently, she also helped him as a, you know, as an uh, apostle of Christ. So here's an example, and, and another example is in First Timothy. Perhaps some of you have already thought of this scripture, but in First Timothy chapter five, we find something quite extraordinary. Uh, again, this corresponds to Paul's. Paul's vision of the church. Um, chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. Now look at that. He's writing to Timothy. Timothy is a, an apostle of Paul. <laughs> he, 
He's a, he's a man that works with Paul. He's a colleague. He's a pastor. Uh, he's an evangelist. Uh, he's to go to Ephesus and uh, help the church to get established and to find perhaps, a, find again a sense of the right direction. But there is work to do in the church of Ephesus, even in terms of discipline. But Paul says to Timothy, this, this is the attitude with which I want you to work within the church. Um, do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. That means that any older man in the church, I need to look at as my father. And even if you have to say something perhaps negative to a father, you don't just want to disrespect him. You always need to be a little salt in your tongue and speak with with great care. So do not rebuke an older man. Do not offend an older man. Treat him. Exhort him to do right as you would a father. Uh, the younger men you're of your own age, consider them as brothers. Older women as mothers. How many mothers? <laughs> well, just as many older women there in the church. And how many brothers and sisters? Well, as many as there are in the church. And even outside of the church, other churches, they're all brothers and they're all sisters. They're all mothers. They're all fathers. Of course, the fellowship of the local church will be more intimate, more felt, more tangible. And yet, our family is very large. And the younger uh, women as sisters with all purity. So, this is very definitely the vision of the New Testament for the local church. So, when the, lo- when the New Testament speaks of the church as a family, it really means it. It really means it. It's not just a term that's thrown out there. Again, one of these theor- theoretical doctrine. We really are a spiritual family. We really are brothers and sisters in Christ. We do have many fathers and many mothers, many men to whom we can open up our bosom. We should be able to. Uh, And you sisters have many sister women that uh, you can speak to. And the younger have many fathers, and the fathers have many, many children. Which means, in practical terms, that no one in the church should feel alone, disregarded, Uh, uncared for and if that happens uh, that is a terrible thing for a local church we don't think much of that um, in this fast paced world where everything runs very fast and we forget things are important Uh, but blessed are those who have who, who think of the widows think of those who are alone think of the elderly And blessed are the elderly who have heart for the younger generation and try to relate to them, who take initiative to invite a young person for a fishing trip and establish some friendship. Uh, It doesn't always have to be, you know, Bible verses all the time. It doesn't have to be that way. If that happens, there is something wrong about you. We, We should be able to express friendship uh, a human friendship just as we live from day to day uh, of course God is central God is essential the word of God is everything but uh, 
Jesus was a carpenter. <laughs> he lived a normal human life in so many different ways. And that's how we should be. So we see that the answer to this marginalization that we experience because we're rejected by the world and we may feel small, like in a minority, and uncared for, discounted, and uh, that, that need for social relation, spiritual relation, find the answer in the remnant. At least on a human level. Now, uh, uh, perhaps we can end by reading Second Timothy uh, chapter 4. We have already mentioned this in some way. Uh, this is Paul's last letter. He's about to be killed for the sake of Christ. So, he says in verse 16, At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. I hear, I'm left alone, and they want to kill me. Uh, may not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for His heavenly kingdom. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. We will end up with this verse this evening. But two things. Uh, one is that the ultimate answer for our loneliness is the fellowship of God. Is the presence of God. A local church can come short. Uh, brothers and sisters in Christ sometimes may forget your needs. May not be sensitive enough. We will all in some measure disappoint one another. We experienced that in Rome. I'm sure that you experienced this here. Uh, but ultimately, um, human beings cannot fulfill your needs. Uh, our needs really are so huge. Our human needs are so huge that only God can fulfill them. We need truth. We need to be certain of that truth. Well, only God can give us that. Uh, we need forgiveness. Only God can give us that. No husband, no wife, no son, no daughter can give us that. Uh, we need salvation. Only God can give us that. Uh, we need security. Ultimately, only God can give us that. So whatever it is in time and eternity that we need, there is a place for human companionship and friendship. And it must be cultivated in the local church. And even a few this evening feel like, you know, in this regard I've been kind of neglectful of cultivating true friendship with my own folks in the local church. I need to repent of this and be more active 
perhaps I need to open my house with some hospitality during the week. You know, one advice I gave you, if I can you know, suggest something, every, every week or so, every couple of weeks, have somebody over from the local church. Not the same folks all the time. Even those difficult ones. Because that's the challenge to be a local church. Have you been doing that? May I ask? Uh, if you have not, I really would encourage you. Have sisters and brothers over. Of, of course, Paul says in all purity. So good measures are to be taken. That That's done properly. But let us improve that aspect. Even as we need to do that in Rome. And uh, in Rome, Italy. Uh, but ultimately, again, only God can satisfy our needs. And so Paul was by himself. He had no one to be alongside of him in the moment of the greatest needs. Imagine that. I mean, you know, he, he was a very social person. He often had friends around him and Christians around him. But at this very moment, uh, at the climax of his life, when they were pronouncing his death sentence, no one dared to be close to him because it would have been very risky. And so he's disappointed, but he forgives. He doesn't want God to charge that. <laughs> he believes in justification by faith, <laughs> in the grace of God. And yet, he says, but the Lord stood with me and strengthen me so that the message might be preached fully through me. You see, that's how his mind was. He doesn't say, God stood with me just so that I may be consoled. Poor me. No, no. He stood with me, I'm sure, lifted him up so as to give him one more ounce of strength, the final breath to testify of Christ to the very end. That's what, for Paul, was most valued. Not his own life, not his own comforts, but the preaching of the gospel so that others may hear. That's a man that has given his life, really, as far as he was able to do. Um, and then the funnel is just what he says. Um... Oh, and let me say, just concerning this very point, therefore, uh, the priority of priorities is fellowship with God. Fellowship with God. We'll always feel an emptiness in our life until we find God and cultivate fellowship with Him. Then He's all in all. He feels it all. Even though you may be by yourself, still He will be sufficient for your needs. And then ultimately, as I will say in uh, verse 18, the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for His heavenly kingdom. To Him be glory forever and ever. As He had already said, verse 6, I am already being poured out as a, a drink offering and the time of my death, my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. 
I have kept the faith. Finally, in the end, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved disappearing. And so, we go back to the concept of the, of the linear concept of history. There is something coming. <laughs> there is something to look forward to. The kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God. And that's what Paul was looking towards. Um, in that time, all the remnant will be gathered. And that remnant will be so large, they will no longer look like a remnant. <laughs> there will be, I am sure, billions of people that will make their voice be heard in all heavens uh, to shout the glories of God forever and ever. And there is no tongue that can tell, there's no mind can, can conceive what that's going to be like. What we have here, even as we play our piano, as we sing our songs, just as, as beautiful and tender that is, it cannot be compared to what we shall experience there. If we have loved this fellowship, oh my, <laughs> what will it be like when you and I, so frail, so needy, will be in that uh, wonderful place? Uh, the remnant then will no longer look like a remnant. <laughs> Uh, personally, I feel like all these 60 million babies they killed in America over the last decades or so, they will all be there. And I, I hear there are hundreds of millions that have been aborted uh, in recent years all over the world. They will be there too. That's my own personal conviction. Not by merit, but by the grace of God. Do you know why I believe it? Because He loves to save the rejects of the world, that His grace may be exalted. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Amen.